Hey, Mike, I got a question for you. What's up, Sean? Do we have a website? Not only do we have a website, we're getting a new website as well. A new website? Oh, my gosh. You can find our show now at texaspodcast.fm. .fm, just like your grandpa's old radio. So here's the plan, folks. We've got a new site, texaspodcast.fm. We're going to be going live soon. You'll find the site, new look, new feel, all the same great podcasts. You don't need to update your feed. You don't need to change anything right now. But uh, just check it out. I sure do miss the good old days when an entire family of 14 could be wiped out by a single disease in a weekend. (laughs) Yep, that is true. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. While James Garner and Mel Gibson may have made the last name famous, the real man's story was as exciting as anything that's played out on the big or little screen. Today we're not talking about the fictional character Brad Maverick, but real-life Texas hero, Samuel Maverick. But first, what's your favorite fishing hole in Texas? Well, mine is uh, Lake Kemp, which is west of Wichita Falls. It's a big lake uh, out in south of Vernon. And uh, my dad and my brother and I used to go fishing uh, when we lived up there in North Texas regularly. And we would often catch some pretty good-sized bass and catfish right near the dam. Allegedly, there was a catfish near the dam that was the size of a Volkswagen. I think there is a legendary catfish that's the size of a Volkswagen anywhere that catfish may live. Yes, that is true. Um, Now, I was never a real big fisherman, but uh, I did have a lot of good times floating around in the boat on Moses Lake and Dollar Bay down there in Texas City. Um, Fished for flounder, mostly caught uh, hardheads and croakers. Ah, the fabled croaker. Well, I've had some good... Hmm? Is the croaker good eaten? I wouldn't say so, but apparently my uh, my great-grandmother thought they were just fine. Yeah, it's considered a trash fish by most people. Um, well, I've had some adventures in, uh, you know, Redfish Bay and Aransas Pass and, you know, Corpus Christi Bay. But uh, I'm going to say that probably my favorite fishing hole is a little one I like to call the Gulf of Mexico. But I think it should be called the Gulf of Texas because I'm pretty sure we have most of the coastline. Uh, I don't bother measuring things. I go by my gut. My gut tells me that it's mostly Texas, by the way. So don't bother tweeting me or writing in. Please email Mike. (laughs) The Maverick family has had a long history in the New World, first arriving in 1624. They originally settled in Barbados in the Caribbean and later moved to Charleston. Samuel Augustus Maverick was born on July 23, 1803, and was the eldest son of Charlton businessman Samuel Maverick and wife Elizabeth Anderson. The curious story of his family goes back before that, though. After the death of his grandfather and before he was born, Sam's grandmother married American Revolutionary War General Robert Anderson. In October 1802, Samuel August's father, also named Samuel, married Anderson's daughter, who was his step-aunt, and nine months later, Samuel Augustus was born. Since he shared a first name with his father, the younger Samuel's family simply called him Gus. Gus and his family remained in Charleston for the next several years, and his mother had four more children in the next four years, 
although one only lived less than a day. In 1809, when Gus was six years old, his sister Anne Caroline died of yellow fever. All ten of the elder Samuel's siblings had died of the same disease as children, and he was eager to prevent the same thing from happening in his own family. To that end, he moved to Pendleton, South Carolina in 1810, believing that it had a healthier environment. He always cautioned his children to live in a healthful climate so that they would not fall dip. He always cautioned eh. he always cautioned his children to live in a healthful climate so that they would not too fall victim to a tropical disease. When he moved to Pendleton, the elder Samuel slowly withdrew from his company in Charleston that imported goods from England, the Netherlands, Germany, Cuba, and France. Instead, he established a plantation and spent much of his time and energy buying land in South Carolina, Alabama, and Georgia. This was a profession that his son would later take to with gusto. In 1814, the final of Gus's siblings was born, a sister named Lydia. Four years later, when Gus was 15, his mother passed away. Before 1822, the younger Maverick's education took place at home. He then moved to Ripton, Connecticut to study under a tutor, and in September was admitted to Yale University as a sophomore. At Yale, his family nickname of Gus was dropped, and he simply came to be known as Sam. Sam graduated in 1825 and moved back to Pendleton to apprentice under his father and learn about business affairs. While under his father's wing, he developed an eye for land and a careful approach to business. The elder Sam deeded him some land, and on February 4, 1826, Maverick made his first land purchase, a half lot in Pendleton. In 1828, Maverick's career shifted, and he traveled to Winchester, Virginia to study law with Henry St. George Tucker Sr. He was a former congressman and a future president of the Virginia Court of Appeals. Maverick was licensed to practice law in Virginia on March 26, 1829, and a few weeks later, received a license to practice in South Carolina. Still in 1829, Maverick moved back to Pendleton and set up a law practice. The following year, he ran for a seat in the South Carolina legislature, running on an anti-nullification and an anti-secession platform. Now, even as early as 1830, this was not a particularly popular point of view in the South, especially in South Carolina. Maverick placed ninth out of the 13 candidates, earning only 1,628 votes. In fact, his views were so unpopular that he actually had to leave the state in 1833. I guess just because they didn't like him? Yeah, well, it was the home of nullification, so... Yeah. Now, Maverick moved to Georgia, and there he ran a gold mine. Why not? The mine failed, and by the end of the year, he was back home. At the end of January 1834, he left Pendleton and moved to Lauderdale County, Alabama, with 25 of his father's slaves to run a plantation his father had given him. They arrived in March and were joined by his widowed sister, Mary Elizabeth, and her three children later that year. Sam didn't run the plantation long, primarily because he did not like supervising slaves. By March 16th of 1835, just a little over a year after arriving in Alabama, he left for Texas. This was not the first time he thought about Texas, though, and a note in his 1826 journal spoke about Stephen F. Austin, his land grant, and how quickly Mexico, including Texas, was being settled. To a budding speculator like Sam Maverick, it must have seemed like the promised land. Maverick traveled first to New Orleans, and from there he took a brig named Henry to Velasco at the mouth of the Brazos, arriving in April 1835. When he got there, there were fewer than 30,000 people living in the territory. Sam immediately set out to buy land, 
and made his first purchase just a month or so later on May 20th. Although Maverick had bought the land, to officially transfer the title, he had to go to Austin's capital in San Felipe, and he spent several months going up and down the Brazos around San Felipe looking for more land to buy. Sam suffered a bout of malaria, and no doubt remembering the advice of his father and the fate of his sister, he decided to move to the drier climate of San Antonio, which also happened to be surrounded by large swaths of unclaimed land. Fifteen days after reaching San Antonio, he was ready to start buying up tracks. Sam had, of course, arrived in San Antonio just as the events leading up to the Texas Revolution were taking shape. By September, Stephen F. Austin, who'd just spent 18 months in a Mexican prison, issued a call to arms to defend the Mexican Constitution of 1824, which General Santa Ana was showing all signs of reversing or simply ignoring. The Battle of Gonzales occurred soon after, and the revolution began. On October 16th, the commander of the Mexican army in San Antonio, General Martin Perfecto de Caz, placed a guard at the door of the home where Sam Maverick was staying. De Caz was suspicious of the Anglos in the area, and Maverick, his host John Smith, and another boarder at the house, A.C. Holmes, were forbidden to leave the city. The house arrest had been going on over just a week before the Texan army arrived on October 24th and began what would become the Siege of Behar. Maverick was in the habit of keeping a diary, and this document provided a generally faithful eyewitness record of the events of the siege. In fact, it is one of the most vivid records of the siege of Behar. That was not all the writing Maverick did at the time, though. He and his fellow prisoners also sent messages to the Texans with information about what was happening within the city, which is odd behavior for someone who's under house arrest and in the middle of a siege during wartime. Now, many of these messages were sent to a friend from his childhood, Thomas Jefferson Rusk, who it turned out was the inspector general of the army for the provisional government. The Maverick and Smith were not allowed to leave the city until December 1st, when General Cause finally released them. He had been correct in keeping them prisoner, though, because the first thing the men did was approach the Texan army to provide their firsthand knowledge of the situation in the town. They also... They also urged the commander of the army, Edward Burleson, to attack immediately. That cause was a great general there. (laughs) Burleson actually wanted to retreat instead. Only the quick action of Ben Milam stopped him from doing just that. And on the morning of December 5th, Maverick used his knowledge of Bayard to lead Milam and his detachment of volunteers into the city, while Smith guided another detachment led by Colonel Frank Johnson. The following five days were taken up with building-to-building fighting. During that battle, Ben Milam was shot in the head by a sniper, and Maverick caught his dead body as it fell to the ground. On the morning of the sixth day, Cause surrendered, and Maverick attended the ceremony of surrender alongside Burleson and Johnson. Due to the chaotic environment, the provisional government of Texas decided in November that all land sales in Texas after August 20, 1835 would be voided. Maverick nonetheless continued to buy land in and around San Antonio once the siege was over. He also served with the rebel forces and was stationed with the army at the Alamo. In February, when San Antonio elected delegates for the Texas Independence Convention, the garrison was prohibited from voting because they were considered transients. The men in the Alamo held their own election for delegates and chose Maverick and James Butler Bonham, who had been a lawyer in Pendleton at the same time as Maverick. Bonham declined the nomination, and Jesse Badgett was elected in his place. Although Badgett left immediately for the convention, which was set to begin on March 1st, 
Maverick stayed at the Alamo all the way up till the next day, March 2nd, which was the very day that the delegates at the convention were approving the Texas Declaration of Independence. By then, the siege of the Alamo had been underway for more than a week, and according to Maverick's children, William Barrett Travis sent Sam away in order to urge the convention to send reinforcements. Maverick and John William Smith, who was carrying one of Travis's final messages, arrived at the convention on Saturday, March 5th. It was in recess for the weekend, but they called a special session for Sunday. By the time the special session concluded, the Battle of the Alamo was already over. The next day, Maverick signed the Texas Declaration of Independence. There has been some question as to whether or not he also signed the Texas Constitution because the print version that was published does not include his name. His signature, however, clearly appears on page 11 of the original as Samuel A. Maverick from Behar. Despite being so thoroughly involved in the newly developed government, Maverick's land gamble during the turmoil leading up to the revolution did not pay off, and his land claims after August 20th were rendered invalid. When the convention adjourned two weeks later, after having set up the Constitution and the government of Texas, Maverick traveled to Nacogdoches. He remained there several weeks while suffering from an illness he'd contracted during the convention, and traveled from there to Alabama to help his sister. He left at about the same time that San Houston won the decisive battle as San Ah he left at about the same time that Sam Houston had won the decisive battle at San Jacinto and missed the end of the revolution. In Alabama, Sam met an eighteen year old Mary Ann Adams soon after his arrival, and within three months on August fourth, eighteen thirty six, the two of them got married at her widowed mother's plantation near Tuscaloosa. The couple split their time the couple initially split their time between Alabama and South Carolina, and in March, the couple visited Sam's father in South Carolina. Mary gave birth to a son, Samuel Maverick Jr., on May 14th, just nine months after their wedding. Old Sam Maverick was pleased that his son seemed ready to settle down, and he offered to give him his plantation. But the younger Sam had other plans. He was going to return to Texas, and Texas had plans for him. Well, it's a Sam great... Maverick. I know, what a great name. Maverick. Mm-hmm. So he's 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 kind of typical of these uh, of these uh, you know pre Civil War early Southern planter and Western planter types, and in, in that they were obsessed with land. They just wanted to get so much land and and speculate in lots and lots and lots of land. Uh, but I found it interesting that he wasn't much interested in farming. He just wanted to get more land. Um, and he tried lawyering, and he and he and he did okay at it. And he tried some politics, and he did okay at it. Um, and he tried a gold mine, and it failed. Uh, but he wanted to get more land. He just was interested in buying up as much dead gum land as he seemed to be able to do. <laughs> you well, know. that's what the uh, early days of Texas, at least as far as the Anglo's were concerned, was all about: was right. getting more land. All I can think of is the scene from um, the original Richard Donner Superman in the 70s when uh, Lex Luthor says to Miss Tessmark, he says, Do you know what the last thing my father said to me was? Get out, Lex. <laughs> Before that, he said, land. So, I don't know. It's a diabolical plan to buy up all of the brush land in Texas that nobody wants. Um, I mean, I think it's a, it's a thing of... of there's still a notion today that, you know, land, ownership of land has an inherent value and that 
they saw this as let's lay the foundation let's let's take care of this land because people will be coming here they'll need it then we'll own it we can build infrastructure and houses and cities and we can sell it and trade it and i think they saw it as you know really this was more valuable than gold or cattle or oil or anything else was you know you needed ownership of this new country that we were building yeah and and you know we've talked in the past and several historians such as uh hh brandis have talked about that 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 drive towards that land speculation drive the the impetuous of the of the uh of the early southern and western citizens and americans and really even the early americans that it perpetually drove people west because uh they either overbuy the land or over speculate and run out of money and flee their debts and then proceed west to try to get you know more land on credit and try to get more credit to buy more land at the further west that they went or just squat on land that wasn't wasn't occupied so it it did play a huge part in in the settlement of texas the early anglo settlement of texas because it was just, this was cheap land or free land that uh, the westerners that or the americans could come in and take uh, and and utilize and and you know, the only problems that existed were that there was lots of Comanche over a lot of the land that was available in Texas, but that, that was a temporary problem in the in the eyes of the <laughs> of the Anglos. Yeah, um, these guys have only been here, you know, kind of forever. Yeah. Well, the other thing I find interesting is that you know he he yeah, as I said earlier, he it seems like there's only twelve people in the South because he knew Thomas Rusk, he knew Chase Butler Bonham. Uh, it's possible that he knew William Barrett Travis because they were both lawyers and uh, they both spent time in Alabama and in South Carolina. So, you know, it's entirely possible that all these people, he certainly, I'm sure, knew uh, knew of Sam Houston because he was, you know, he was of that time. So that's the interesting thing is like he, you know, Bonham and Rusk are two major figures in Texas history. And this guy you know, grew up with one of them and, and practiced law with another one. Yeah. And we've said this too, is that, you know, like these guys were, you know, this was just a time when people were a lawyer and a newspaperman and a doctor and a dentist and a landman and a cattle rancher and a plantation owner. And, you know, and, and X, Y, Z that these guys had uh, pretty big resumes. And a newspaperman and a lawyer and a doctor. Yeah. So you, they, they always end up being newspapermen. <laughs> Somehow. Yeah, yeah, we haven't got to that part of the story yet. Or dry goods merchants. Or dry goods, yeah, exactly. But you look at these guys and you're like, wow, they're they're just, you know, they were enterprising gentlemen. I mean, this guy went to Yale. Yeah. You know, that that used to mean something. Yeah. Ooh, burn. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big deal. Yeah, he was a big deal. We see him like a smart, interesting guy. I got very confused at the original lineage of when we were at the beginning that the father married the daughter who was a step aunt to the, you know, to that. So it was a, <laughs> it's a very close knit family for a little yeah. piece of it. Yeah. Yes, that is true. And that he, that he lost all 10 of his siblings. Uh, the elder Sam lost all 10 of his siblings to tropical diseases. That's, that's pretty harsh. Well, yep. you know, you can just remember that when you start pining for the good old days. Yeah. I sure do miss the good old days when an entire family of 14 could be wiped out by a single disease in a weekend. <laughs> yep. <that laughs> go, back and, go back and listen to our El Vomito Negro episode about uh, sweeping diseases. 
Well, so the other thing is that, you know, he was, he picked either the right time or the wrong time to come to Texas. So he picked the exact right time to be right in the middle of, you know, one of the more pivotal events um, in Texas history. And he picked the right time to get out of the Alamo. Um, yeah, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't, I didn't even know he was at the Alamo. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah, he's not. You don't talk about Maverick being there, but the other piece of it too is that he wasn't a rabble rouser like Travis. No, like no. he was. You know, he was a very seems like a very like the stories I've read about Travis. You're like, well, he's a great writer. I wouldn't want him to be my neighbor. This yeah. guy would make a great neighbor. <laughs> like his lawn he would be around. Mode, he'd he want to buy your. Around. He'd want to buy your property. Yeah, it's not for sale, but thanks for you know keeping an eye out. Yeah, but he, he's the man who caught Ben Milam's body as he hit the ground. That's crazy. And he was one of the last men out of the Alamo. And I never, I mean, you always think about Seguin, you talk about the bottom, went left and came back. And, you know, you talk about those guys, but, you know, don't think about Samuel Maverick. Mm-mm. That's crazy. That was, that was a neat part of the story to find out. See, folks, even us Texas geeks. We can learn. We'll learn. We learn something every week. <laughs> and then, he, and then yeah. he winds up. You know, five days after they've approved the, the, or three days after they've approved the Declaration of Independence, he's like, "Oh, I want to sign it," and he signs it. <laughs> he puts his name on there. So there's more to come from Sam Maverick. So come back next week, and we'll finish this story in part two. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. A big shout-out to our good friend James Avendroff for helping us to research and write this episode. You can find him on Twitter at Blackguard Press and find his fiction work at blackguardpress.com. And keep watching the skies because TexasPodcast.fm will be launching soon. .fm, just like your grandpa's old radio. If you like this show, help us out. Tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. We, uh, and if you'd like to support the show financially, please visit Patreon.com slash TexasPodcast. We hope you'll join us next time. And remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. <laughs>